this podcast number 790 with author Maria Quibon Whitesell is brought to you by Thais Gibson. The author of a new book entitled Attachment Theory, A Guide to Strengthening the Relationships in Your Life. Please join Thais and Greg on podcast number 789 for a lively dialogue about the four basic forms of attachment styles show up in your relationships. And more importantly, what you can do to better cope and change how you personally show up in all your relationships. Thus, improving the quality of your relationships. They also speak about acceptance and commitment therapy and the benefits you can receive in your romantic partnerships by practicing acceptance and commitment in your life. If you want to learn more about attachment theory and Thais Gibson, please visit her website at www.personaldevelopmentschool.com That is P-R-S-O-N-A-L-D-E-V-E-L-O-P-M-E-N-T-S-C-H-O-O-L.com where you can explore courses and learn more about Thais Gibson. Please listen to Thais and Greg in their engaging and informative podcast number 789. Thanks for listening and now for a featured podcast, enjoy Greg's interview with Maria Quibon Whitesell. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Maria, if you listen to any of my shows, you know I always thank my listeners. I thank them from around the world who keep coming and listening to this show to learn the words of wisdom from our offers, authors. And today, joining us from Los Angeles is Maria Quibane uh, Whitesell, and she uh, had help on the book, too, with Lauren Schneider. Is that correct? Was she a contributing um, person to your book? Yes, she was our contributing author and lent uh, an amazing breadth of knowledge. She's a licensed uh, clinician specializing in grief and uh, loss and children. Well, she was certainly did an excellent job with you in co-writing this. And the book is called You Can't Do It Alone, A Widow's Journey Through Loss, Grief, and Life After. And the book is really, really touching uh, Maria, and if you want to, for my listeners, um, we will put links to the website where you can actually um, go learn more about the book, learn more about Maria, learn more about her story. Um, but I'm going to let the listeners know a little bit about you. Um, Maria greets millions of Los Angeles viewers each morning as Fox 11's weather anchor. Prior to joining the Good Day LA Fox 11 morning news team, she was the chief weather anchor for the Orange County News Channel and before that, meteorologist for NBC Hawaii News 8 in Honolulu, Hawaii. She's an Emmy award-winning news anchor and broadcaster meteorologist and is also familiar to many around the world from her appearances in film and television, including Clint Eastwood's Bloodwork, Bruce Almighty, Step Brothers, Criminal Minds, Cold Case, and many others. And 
really your your bio reads like kind of the who's who, Maria. But more importantly, <laughs> you're out here to you're you're out here to help people, and I think help people in a way. We had this conversation um, before we actually got on, and uh, I know people who have lost loved ones this way um, from geoblastoma. And my son has leukemia himself, so I'm very familiar with the cancer story. But the story that you tell in the preface of the book is so touching, and especially the part about your son, Gus, and how you both were coping with Sean's loss, uh, your husband. And I think that Mm -hmm. this sets the stage for the interview for this story is kind of the best way for us to let the listeners get an idea of what was going on in your life what was going on with Gus, what was going on with Sean. So I welcome you to kind of tell a little bit about your story before we go into the other parts and aspects of how you coped with this and and dealt with this. Well, um, my son, Gus, who is now nine years old, was just three years old at the time when my husband, Sean, was first diagnosed with glioblastoma, and that's a very malignant, um, not a very common uh, cancer. It's a brain cancer, and what he had specifically was uh, inoperable brain cancer. So the tumors that he had in his head were not only large and deep, but they were just unable to get to them to remove them. So uh, we were really robbed of a chance for even a slightly longer amount of time that we had with him. We uh, fell in love later in life. When we met, I was already divorced and I had a child who was pretty much grown up. And so for me, I didn't need to get married again or have children again. And when I met Sean, it was just a whole different story. I just felt like I had met that partner that I could be with for the rest of my life. And I really cherished every moment. And so did he. We were both. And I had just turned 40. He was in his 40s. And so we cherished every moment that we had with each other. Just finding each other was amazing. And we had a child, which was a surprise and such a gift. We had tried. We couldn't have a child. And then here comes Gus. And so at 42, I had my, my second son. And we were just ecstatic. And uh, Sean, who was uh, just Well, he had just turned 50, and we got this amazing gift from his family and uh, his 40th birthday, which was to go to Paris. And so we decided this was the time to go. Gus was three. He was old enough to be left at home with my parents. So we go on this amazing vacation to Paris together, and we're alone for the first time in a a long time. And we were 24-7 with each other because we were working so much leading up to this trip. But it was on this trip that I discovered some really odd behavior and discovered him to be just out of sorts and not just forgetful, but but just really not himself. And so when he got back, when we both got back, I asked him to see a doctor. And of course he did. And two weeks after we got back, he was diagnosed with glioblastoma. Cut to the crisis that we went through that 18 months together, but we had found some joyful moments as well. But really that day, the book begins with um, the morning that Sean passes away. And I'm having to tell our then five-year-old son, he had just turned five, that his daddy died in the middle of the night. 
And it was truly um, the most difficult conversation I've had really to date with someone and telling Gus uh, that his daddy died at 2.40 in the morning and I couldn't wake him up. I didn't want to wake him up to bother his sleep and he was angry with me for not waking him up. But somehow I found the words to tell him what had happened. And I prayed and I prayed to God to give me the right words. I prayed and I asked Sean for help. And I think somehow I did find the right words and told Gus what happened. And um, uh, he forgave me eventually for not waking him up. But that was, it was a very difficult thing, but, but he's a good kid and he understood and he's smart and children are, are amazing. Well, I think one of the things, Maria, is that you've been having advice from your counselors all along about how to work with Gus during those 18 months because you were smart enough to go out and do that. And a lot of people don't. Um, They're just trying to cope, period, or they don't know how to cope or they haven't gone to a support group. What advice would you give to any of our listeners out there that are dealing with young children or children at all um, with a possible situation like this? where in this case, uh, you know, Sean was given 18 months by the doctors at UCLA, and it was almost to the month that he literally passed away. So you had Mm -hmm. enough advance warning and notice, and you were preparing Mm -hmm. Gus kind of all along. But what advice would you give to people that are in this situation? Well, um, well, you mentioned the fact that we had had um, family therapy and an amazing counselor uh, from the beginning. And really that was part of a, a huge part of how I have been able to and still continue to really live through this somehow. Um, my my big advice, and there's a few, I guess, is um, find a really good support system. And you start with your family and your friends but um, also find a really good family counselor. And we were very fortunate that in the beginning, we really in dealing with the diagnosis ourselves, I remember it was mentioned in conversation um, about finding someone really good for us to talk about that diagnosis and to get through some of the upcoming um, harrowing, really, uh, treatments and all that. And we found a good therapist who recommended another therapist who specialized in children. And so at the very beginning, we were really lucky to get that help and to find the language to be able to explain to a three-year-old exactly what cancer is and that daddy had cancer, but mommy did not have cancer and that he didn't have cancer. And that was an important distinction to make that we didn't say that daddy was sick because never wanted to put fear in Gus's mind. I had some personal experience. My birth father actually died when I was very young. I was almost eight years old at the time and he died in an accident. So I do remember some of that. I remember the fear that I felt. And I remembered right away that that was something I was determined not to have Gus feel. And so Sean and I talked about it and that was, he was our main concern. And so um, we definitely tried to make decisions. We were very honest with him from the beginning and, um, and still are. I, I'm still very honest with Gus always. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's really important to be with kids. How old is Gus now? 
he's nine years old now. And um, okay. I have to say, he's, he's a really well-adjusted kid. Well, that's because of the way you interwove the counseling and the important elements of this into the relationship. And, you know, it was June 18th, 2014 that Sean was diagnosed. And what was it like for you and Gus and Sean? And what changed in your life about embracing the time you had left? What happened to you emotionally? What happened to you spiritually um, that you were able to um, learn how to better, I won't say we always 100% cope with something like this, but how you were mm-hmm. better able to cope um, with knowing mm-hmm. that this was inoperable and that Sean wasn't going to make it through it. You guys tried everything. You went all kinds of places. But what what did you decide to do when you realized that that really was it? What What was the most important thing spiritually and emotionally for you guys as a family? Well, um, it's important to remember that uh, it was a process for us. And for, for most people, that that's going to be the case. You know, we didn't just, after the diagnosis and the prognosis, that we said, okay, great. Let's, and it, it, we took a little bit of time to process everything. And it was terrifying. I have to say that we were in this crisis mode. And his prognosis was actually just a few months. Like, I think they told us that if we did nothing, um, he would have about three months to live. And if we went with the standard of care, which really just consisted of um, resection or removing the tumors to chemotherapy and radiation, that if we were lucky, we would get anywhere from 12 to 14 months. So the fact that we had 18 months with him was a gift. We went through a little bit of a roller coaster, as you can imagine, and um, we have a great family and support system. And so I really think that because they were there, it helped us so much to feel more secure in that um, we weren't going through it alone. We mobilized as a family. I mean, immediately, Sean has five brothers, so there are six of them. Um, total. His parents were amazing raising six sons, but, uh, and they grew up a Catholic family, obviously <laughs> having six, six sons. And, uh, they were there by our side immediately. Sean has, uh, four brothers that live here in, in Southern California. And then one was in New York City. And, uh, they immediately came to our side. My family, my parents, my, brother, my, everyone, our friends. Um, and, you know, our world just was filled with love and support. And I'm so thankful for that. And so we were able to take this crazy diagnosis head on uh, with this army, if you will. Right. And it, it helped uh, get through those days for sure. For sure. Well, as you know, family is one of the most important things, but you also referenced in the book the works of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, which uh, many people out there who dealt with cancer and her centers understand the the amazing work that she's done and the grief therapist notebook that you write about. Um, yeah. Tell us about the emotions that you and Sean were feeling 
and how acceptance, because that is one of the big areas here. When we're talking about something having to deal with the loss of someone, it's acceptance can help others that are dealing with the potential loss of a loved one. Um, how big of a help was this to you, the grief therapists and um, working with those counselors? Well, I can tell you I've learned so much, um, even through writing this book and with Lauren Schneider and learning about the different stages that um, Kubler-Ross talks about, even David Kessler, who has just written another book about finding meaning. And it's it's really a cycle and a circle of emotions. And we went through all the stages and I still do. I, I want you to know that I still get angry. I still have wild, uh, wide swings of emotion at times. I think the difference is being able to recognize what they are. And I think through counseling, through our community um, at church, it's it's just the ability to recognize these feelings as being, we're not alone. And so with that, I'm comforted and um <laughs> It's just yesterday, actually, I was, it's interesting that you, sh- you should say that. I mean, there was a moment of of elation for me because the book is finished. And I know that Sean helped me write it. He's a writer. He was a writer by trade. And, and I wear a microphone every day at work. And part of the, the journey for me in acceptance, if you will, is accepting that he got this diagnosis, that we got this diagnosis together, because there were a lot of whys. Why did this have to happen to us? Why was it Sean that had to have this disease? Why not some bad person in jail, you know, somebody who's committed heinous crimes? And and I've had long talks with our priest about this. And, you know, honestly, we don't know exactly the reason why. All I know is that God doesn't punish us like that. It's just things happen. And we'll know what that greater purpose is eventually. But in the meantime, I know what, I think I know what my short-term purpose is. And hopefully that includes not just raising our son now, but also in trying to help other people. And that's hopefully through writing this book. Hopefully it's through talking about the need for awareness for glioblastoma and brain cancer and the need for funding for research because it gets so little funding. Um, it doesn't discriminate this disease. It will take you when you're old, when you're young, or whomever you are. So we have to try to find a cure um, for brain cancer, at least allocate more funding for research towards it. So, you know, all those emotions well, I, I run through. <laughs> well, I, I love your mission and it's so heartfelt and you're going to, in in your own way, contribute um, through the discussions that people like you and I are having to TV appearances, to funding, helping fund research for uh, geoblastoma every way possible um, because this helps you heal. Um, part of the healing cycle is this. I know that because I, I went through something very similar. And one of the stories you tell in the book is is really quite moving. You know, Sean was a writer. He was a very good writer. He was in the middle of a script and a project which was non-commissioned. You mentioned that in the book called Eddie and the Aviator, based on a story uh, that Sean had written. But if you would, tell the listeners about how the families came together, especially Sean's brothers, to make the movie happen 
and the premiere at the Metropolitan Opera House in downtown Iowa Falls, which is where he was from. That was a really, mm-hmm. I mean, just really beautiful part of the book. Uh, thank you. Well, Sean's brothers, um, they were so close, and they still are all so very close. And they knew each other's passions and, and dreams and goals. And they knew that Sean, as a writer, had always wanted to produce and direct and write and uh, a short film um, of this magnitude. And so when he dove into this script while going through radiation and chemotherapy, mind you, he really wanted to complete this story that he had started to write prior to his diagnosis. And so he wanted to see this short film made and he wanted to see it entered into um, uh, film festivals. And so his brothers came and said, we want to make this happen with you. We want to help you do this. And part of it, I think, was also them knowing that it would help keep Sean focused on doing something and keeping himself strong and healthy, um, not just for us, but also to be able to finish the film, which would have taken X number of months. And so part of it was that, but it was also partly the joy that they knew that they were going to help bring to Sean. And so they mobilized along with the rest of our extended family and they helped um, with food and craft service. They, helped facilitate the, the editing um, part of the film, uh, watching the film and giving Sean critical notes and made some changes. We, um, as a family, flew to Iowa Falls, Iowa, and had the uh, debut at the theater there in their hometown. And uh, many of their high school friends came to join the small town, like 4,000 4, people. And everyone came and it was just One of the happiest times, I think, for us as a family, and I know for a fact for Sean, because he had written a bunch of notes down, which I've found, these little gems. He wrote things everywhere. And so that's why I'm so hesitant to throw anything away. But I found this note that he wrote, and he wrote something like, this was the most fun he had ever had going back home on the 4th of July, which we did every year. And um, that was an, an amazing gift that his brothers gave to him. And I think it was also a gift for his brothers to see him um, see his film come to fruition. Oh, I'm so certain of that as well. I mean, you know, the fact that you got to, he got to unite with his mother and father and his brothers, not knowing, you know, if there would be another uniting of that, but also to come out with something that he was so passionate about, was able to complete, and everybody helped to complete really even makes it that much more um, fulfilling for everybody in the family. Now, yeah. Maria, um, you spoke about in the book assembling what you called the A-team for your support, as well as seeking out a caregiver support group. Um, what did you do and what advice would you give to others that are listening right now um, uh, to this podcast about the importance of this A-team and the caregiver support group because this really was a very important thing uh, to helping you move forward, heal through this. Like you said, you're not over it yet. You may never be over it, but you're continuing to heal. And this was a very important element of it. 
I guess what I would say is uh, don't do what I did in the beginning and which was I, I kind of ignored um, the brain cancer support group flyers that I would see at the hospital where we went initially. And um, part of it was probably my denial that this was something we were not going to need. Um, you know, we, I was very hopeful that we would be able to beat this cancer. And I think it's important to keep that hope alive through the end, which is what we did. But I eventually, after probably the third month after diagnosis, saw this flyer. It was in my face again in the waiting area. And um, I thought, okay, I'm going to call. I'm just, I'm going to call because I want to ask these people, um, you know, what are the medicines that we're missing? What are, what are the treatments that I'm missing right now? And so I went to this support group and even in that first meeting that I went to, I felt like, okay, I, I just, I wasted my time. You know, why did I leave Sean for two, two and a half hours to um, not really get the answers that I needed? But I went back, I went back the following month and I kept going back and I realized that I needed them. They were my lampposts for this very dark road that I had been forced to go on. And as a caregiver, um, to particularly this debilitating kind of disease, it was so integral for, for, for me as, um, as I would look at the different treatments that were available for Sean, but even just the nuances of caregiving for your spouse in this very unique way, um, it, it really helped me so much. And I encourage you, anyone, it doesn't matter what kind of illness or disease or loss, but you need to have your village and they will help you in any way they can, because they know they've been on that road before and they were such a tremendous help for me and still are. We, we call, our, I don't know who actually exactly or when it happened, but we've been coined the term, the samurai, the seven samurai, because you have to be a warrior to fight this disease. And our spouses were all warriors, definitely, but caregivers are warriors too. And, um, we just, we meet regularly still to this day and our conversations have changed, you know, from, from treatment schedules and radiation and chemo to now we talk about um, grandchildren and, and, and travel and even new loves, which is amazing. And so I love hearing about those and um, it's, they become lifelong friends. And so I encourage you to find them. Well, it's good that you speak of these groups, and it's important that people find one that they resonate with. And another group, I would always say, is, you know, your spiritual group. And you speak, if you would, speak with our listeners about the evolution of your relationship with God and how it really changed over time in coping with it. Many people get mad at God initially. So they're like you said, Mm -hmm. hey, why, Sean? What happened? But as you move through, usually your spiritual relationship with God or Allah or whatever people worship out there changes. And it's because of them having to go through and deal with this. What's happened for you is that relationship with God? 
I think my relationship with God and spirituality has, has definitely strengthened. Um, when I first met Sean, it was one of the reasons why I think I fell in love with him. He had a very strong relationship with God, and, and I admired that so much. It's definitely stronger than mine. He was a way better way better Catholic than I was, and he really helped me bring that back into my life in a much bigger way. And when he was diagnosed, um, yes, we were angry, and I, I still get angry, as I mentioned earlier. But I've had many talks with um, our priest. We have a close relationship with several priests at our parish. And um, one in particular, two in particular, have moved on to New York. But they come and visit, and we have them over for dinner. And I've asked them, you know, those questions, like, why why did God choose us? Why? (laughs) And, um, you know, they, they said they don't know exactly. But they have reminded me about, God's ways and and how it's a mystery sometimes, but God never leaves us. God's always with us, and we did a lot of pray, and I still do. And I pray for strength to keep going, and um, I ask for Sean's help, and I know he's always here too. And I, as I always tell God, that. Um, if we look hard enough, and if we listen hard enough, we hear, we hear him. We see those messages. We do. And we'll have a deeper conversation with God and those why questions when we get there. Soon enough, we'll get there, but not now. Um, you know, when people uh, make this relationship with God like you have and it's deepened or whatever it is that they worship. If they're listening to their intuition, that small voice inside, and truly they're able to discern, Maria, between that coming from a higher source, God, Allah, whatever it might be, that that's the most important thing is that they listen and believe and trust in it. So, you know, if you hear Sean giving you advice or giving you his love, truly that is because we can make connections with people on the other side. I mean, at some point, you and I are going to pass over there. You're going to reunite with Sean. I know that that's what you believe as well. That's part of what keeps us going. Whatever you needed here to strengthen you and Sean needed, you know, those um, priests can't answer that. But you will be able to learn how to answer it. And what I'd like you to leave our listeners with before we wrap up the interview is with what they might find in themselves in dealing with the ultimate death of a loved one, from caregiving to preparing yourself for this final parting and your own spiritual journey. What words of wisdom or, or help could you give people out there that are listening today that are seeking that right now, that are maybe have a loved one by a bedside um, that's going through hospice and knows that the ultimate is coming, what would you like to tell them? Um, I guess I guess you can start with saying that trust in yourself and know that you are even stronger than you think that you are. You truly are. 
um, we're a lot stronger than we think we are. And just keep the faith and know that um, you're making the right decisions based on what's going on right now. And don't have any regrets about that because I know that you're doing your very best under the worst circumstances sometimes and trust in that little inner voice that you just mentioned, Greg, and know that you're doing the best that you can and um, you're going to, you're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Well, those are great words for people to kind of uh, exit our podcast with. And we have been on with Maria Cuban uh, Weitzel, and the book is called You Can't Do It Alone, A Widow's Journey Through Loss, Grief, and Afterlife. There will be links on our blog to the book at Amazon. There will be links to her website as well. We'll also put up any of the other things that we might be able to to support this, maybe even um, some of the support groups or support group center. So, Maria, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and speaking with our listeners, telling your story, and more importantly, being so authentic like you have been during this interview and pouring out your heart to us. I really appreciate it. I know our, that our listeners do. Um, and thank you so much for telling the story. It needs to be told more often so that people don't hide from this, so that they come out. Um, they don't go put their head in the sand. Uh, that they really address this head on and you become so much more resilient by doing it the way you did it versus, you know, kind of running from it. Now that's the part about acceptance that I really like. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by author Richard Moss, the author of the Mandala of Being and many other books on shifting consciousness and becoming more aware. Please listen to podcast number 786, where Richard and Greg had a dynamic dialogue about becoming radically aware and alive. Richard has created simple practices that will help you attain greater level of awareness and strengthen your spiritual muscle by making you aware of the now and calming your busy mind. If you want to learn more about Richard and Catherine Moss and their live events and coachings, please go to www.richardmoss.com. That's R-I-C-H-A-R-D-M-O-S-S.com. Please listen to Richard and Greg in podcast number 786.